Time to turn off, <clears throat> time to turn off mobile phones. <laughs> do whatever you do to them. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, we pray, please, you'd, um, you'd cause this word to be a great blessing to us. Uh, let it be, please, this morning that you move amongst us in, uh, in wonderful ways, fresh ways by your Holy Spirit to transform and change us and give us insight, please, into ourselves through your word that we might live lives that are different. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's something still up. Oh, still trying to work it out. That's okay. You work it out. We won't watch. <laughs> uh, no, that's okay. I get it. It's stressful, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Especially when... So, yeah. yeah. Let me uh, tell you about some ancient history. Uh, last century. Do you remember last century? Kathy and I, uh, my wife, used to run a water sports camp. So we're talking about 40 years ago, 35 years ago or something. We'd take away groups of teenagers, 16-year-olds, for seven days. I know some of you are actually still involved in this kind of camping work. It was a great work. We'd spend seven days gospeling them in the context of taking them uh, water skiing, uh, sailing, surfing and all these kinds of water sports. And uh, just have a great time. And, uh, but spend the week trying to uh, help them understand the things of Jesus. And kept looking for ways, as we took away groups of teenagers, kept looking for ways to crack open how they thought about life and sort of show them, wow, we, there's bits here that we need to wrestle with that we haven't thought about. And um, we took them through one exercise, which I'm going to show you this, this morning. We did it with one group and broke them up into, you know, usually 70, 80, 90 kids. So there's a lot of kids. We broke them up into groups of um, seven or eight, I can't remember now exactly, but into small groups. And I gave them uh, each a set of photos uh, to reflect on. And I want to show you what happened as we did this. Now, this is, people are worried about this illustration because uh, I'm just going to watch Trev every now and then because he's worried it's all going to go viral as I offend someone. But here's the first photo. Right, awesome. Now, uh, I cut these out of the magazines 35 years ago. I assume they're dead by now, right? So no one will know who they are. Does anyone recognise them? No, all right, good. Now, uh, two photos, put it on the table with a group of people and I said to them, well, what I want you to do is I want you to tell us um, what, what he got in his HSC, what his hobbies are, um, what job he does, what his IQ is. Now, you think, well, how do you know that? All I've got is a photo, two photos. Well, they had the answers, all right? And so the groups universally said he got, he, he, he got about uh, sort of a, a solid pass in his HSC because um, this is his girlfriend. Piece of information you need to know, right? That's his girlfriend. Got a solid pass in the HSC. Um, his uh, IQ is about 100, uh, if you never know what those mean. And um, he, his hobbies are aeroplane, model aeroplanes, flying model aeroplanes, and his job is a mechanic. Pretty much all the groups come up with that, half a dozen different groups come up with that conclusion. I gave this set of photos to another group and I said, that's his girlfriend. Same questions. What do you think they answered? They said, um, HSC, 95 out of 100. They said, IQ, 135, 140. Uh, hobbies, restaurants and travel. His job, he owns an airline. <laughs> That's clever, isn't it? 
All because you changed the girl, right? Now, what do you think of that? What do you think of that? Now, um, it, there's a massive difference, and you've got to agree it's all pretty messed up, yes, the way they thought about things. But here's the, here's the big thing. The problem wasn't with the way they judged stuff. The problem was, actually, that they were very observant. Do you, do you see, I don't think it was an issue necessarily with them. I think what it demonstrated was how observant they were about the world around them. That that's, this is actually what happens in the world, and we've seen it. For a man to get a woman like that, he must have much more going for him than his looks. That's how I got my wife. (laughs) (laughs) I was able to convince her there's much more going on in here than you can see from the surface. After six months, she realised I was wrong. But there you are. She's now now stuck with me. But um, you, you see, what they were doing, they were seeing how wife works. Uh, if you're going to get a woman like that, you've got to have a lot. You've got to have a lot of money. You've got to have something happening besides your looks. Um, now we agree it's all pretty messed up, but for the most part, for most people, we all get on and it's okay. Do you know what happens in life? School's tough, right? Because everyone judges you on all your superficial and so on. But as you come out of school, you find your job, you find your place, you find a group of people who are like you. And you get the status levels and you just get on, don't you? You've got your group, you hang out. The only really stressful place is church. (laughs) Where you come together with a bunch of people who actually are all very different. They're only here because of Jesus. They're not here because it's their friendship circle. And this is probably one of the most stressful groups you're in. Um, But uh, for most of us, it's all that kind of way of judging each other and stuff doesn't make much... You know, we do it badly, but we get on. But there's one area in life... There's one area in life where it matters enormously. It's the spiritual life. The things of God. The things of the Spirit. We need to make judgments about spiritual matters. It's just a fact. Don't imagine you can go through life not making judgments. You have to make judgments. Jesus doesn't condemn all making of judgments. Just the way we make them badly. You see, we need to make judgments about spiritual matters. I mean, primarily, what to make of Jesus? What do we make of him, the man who came in weakness and was crucified on a cross, rejected and despised? What do we make of him? Is he who he claims to be? We need to make a judgment about him. But then we need to make judgments about church. What do we make of church? What do we think of church? Is that really the place to be? Is it a spiritual body of people? And which church? Which church will I go to? Which church will I raise my kids in? Which is the church that is the spirit-filled church? Which really is the church which honours and pleases God? Which is the one that's the most impressive church that I could go to and be part of? We need to make all of these decisions. We need to make decisions about leaders, Christian leaders. Who will I listen to online? Which the leaders online that are worthy of listening to? Which the leaders are worthy of having in your church and promoting in your church? We need to make all these kinds of decisions. And we do it based on a set of values. That's how judgments always occur. When you make a judgment, you have a set of values which enables you to judge that to be good or that to be bad. You've got beneath all of those judgments is a set of values. We need to have these set of values. But here it is. Very often we have the wrong values beneath it all when we judge spiritual things. To put it crassly, we often judge spiritual issues... superficially, based on superficial assessments, based on a set of values that have been shaped by the world and not by God, the true God. 
And so we make bad judgments spiritually. Is this making sense? Now, the whole Bible is written to recalibrate our values about the spiritual realm that we might be able to judge rightly what is truly of God and what is not of God, what is truly spiritual and what is unspiritual. But that only works if you come to the Bible and let it do its job on you and your heart. It's a profound activity and an exercise that I find every day I have to recalibrate and recalibrate because there's a movement in me that moves towards worldly values that I need to keep ripping apart and putting back together again into godly values. The whole Bible's written to recalibrate and that's what we've been doing. But this particular book, we're looking at this term, we're starting a new book, 2 Corinthians. This particular book goes um, you, you know, r- radically into this issue. Because it's written to a church, a place in Corinth, a church in Corinth, which you can go to today. I've got a map for you. Here's a quick little map. Let's see if we can get that up. See Corinth, uh, you get the Mediterranean Sea and the boot of Italy and so on. There's Corinth, right? The Aegean Sea. You can go there today. Uh, Paul is writing to this church in Corinth. We can get rid of that now. That's all we needed it for, just to tell you it's a real place and a real place. You can go in there. So we, we just, Paul is writing to this church. And his desire is to correct the way they're thinking about spiritual matters. They're a church that thinks of themselves as very spiritual. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You go all the way back there. You think you're spiritual, says Paul. They thought they were the great spirit-empowered church, the great spiritual church. But he says you're wrong. You're mere babes in Christ. You're unspiritual. Why? Because they continue to carry into their life, into their, into their way of judging spiritual things, worldly values. A set of priorities that shape the way they think into the spiritual realm. And on that basis, and if you want to put it crass, if just a very simplistic way, they are into spiritual looks. Superficials. Now, it wasn't looks. Uh, though it had some of that, actually. I'll tell you in a moment. But... Um, They were into what humans would think was spiritual if left to our own devices. If you just leave a human and go, you work out what's the truly, what does spiritual things look like? What is it to be spiritual? And let a human go at it. That's what they would come up with was what the Corinthians came up with. A very natural way to think about the spiritual realm. But it's subtle and complex. And this letter is Paul reshaping their spiritual radar. it's, It's kind of helping them pushing them to rethink the whole way they think about God and church life and who is the spiritual and who are, your, who are the leaders that are truly spiritual. It's massive. It's massive because today we are very Corinthian. The Christian church is going through a phase where it is very Corinthian, the last 30, 40 years. Whole new movements have come through that are gripping our church world, online world, the way churches should be, what makes a good church, what you think is a good church, that's very Corinthian. This is a big deal. You know, this letter starts... Come with me now, turn 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and open up. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth. He begins by naming them as the church of God. You are a church of God. But by the end of the letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 13... This will give you a hint into the whole thing if you flip across there. Look at verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. By the time he gets to the end of the letter, he says, I'm not even sure you're Christians anymore. 
Because what's going on for you and the way you're judging spiritual matters actually indicates you might not have even understood the gospel. You might not have understood Christianity at all. And this in a context where there's no issue of grace alone. There's no evidence that they've denied grace alone as the way of being saved. It's a whole other way of thinking about the Christian faith and the person of God and the thing of Jesus that actually demonstrates they've not understood Christianity at all. And Paul's concerned whether they're even Christians. Do you not realise, look at verse 5, do you not realise that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now, why does he put that last bit in? I trust that you'll discover that we have not failed the test. Because the presenting issue for these Corinthians is the way they're thinking about Paul. They're beginning to go cold on the Apostle Paul as their apostle, as their leader. Now, Paul was the, was the apostle who founded the church in one of his missionary journeys. He went through Corinth and he preached the gospel in that region. A church was established. He invested a lot of time with them. For your information, 2 Corinthians is probably his fourth letter to them. 1 Corinthians is probably the second letter to them. He wrote, two, he wrote four letters, of which we've got the second and the fourth. He spent a lot of time with this church. It's probably the church he spent the most time engaged with. He, he founded the church, he preached to the church, he agonised over the church, prayed for it, he visited it, and yet this church is going cold on him. Now, why? Well, because a new group of leaders have come. Very impressive leaders. Spirit-filled leaders, so the Corinthians thought. And on comparison between the new leaders who have come, what Paul calls the super-apostles in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, compared to the super-apostles, Paul was not very super. He didn't look very super. You know what history tells us about the Apostle Paul? Is that he was quite a short man, rotund, bandy legs with a monobrow. <laughs> Big-nosed, not very attractive, not a great speaker. His letters are weighty, but in person he's not very impressive. Do you remember he preached a long sermon where someone fell out of the window dead? <laughs> not happened to any of you yet, has it? So, but, uh, the, the Apostle Paul was very unimpressive. These new letters, and they've gone cold on him, and they're going, our affections, we've gone to these people. These are the leaders that we want for our church. They're judging them to be the ones who are truly in touch with the Spirit. Paul, not so much. So he writes this letter, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, to win them back. The point of 2 Corinthians is to not just win them back to himself, but to Jesus, the true Jesus. Because what he discerns is the fact that they're going cold on me, the Apostle Paul... Um, you know, I don't care, says Paul, really, whether you... Apollos, me, Cephas, whoever, right... But the reason they're going cold on Paul, he discerns to be evidence that they've not understood the gospel and so may not even be saved. If they're making the kind of judgments they are about the Apostle Paul and these super apostles and favouring the super apostles over Paul, it probably means they don't understand Christianity. It's that important and that profound. Now, with all of this as background, it makes the first chapter of 2 Corinthians... I think the most strange, odd and powerful introduction to a letter in the New Testament. Oh, that's an overreach. 
It is, when you understand all of that background, and then you read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you go, wow, why does he say what he says? And then you go, oh, because he's super spiritual. He really knows what's going on. It's, it's the most odd introduction and then the most profound introduction. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia, which is modern Turkey, if you want to know where Ephesus is. Um, we were under great pressure beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we received the sentence of death. Now, Paul starts his letter by saying, we don't want you to be uninformed about how, how much we struggled, how we weren't coping. Now, remember who he's writing to. He's writing to people who judge spiritual matters on superficials, who judge spiritual matters wrongly, inappropriately. And if I can give you a quick summary of what their judgments are, they thought the evidence of the Spirit of God is seen in power, prestige, status, triumph. There's a quick summary. Um, wisdom and glory and so on. It was a theology of glory. And, and what Paul's effectively doing is saying, um, I'm worried that you're dismissing me because I'm weak. So let me tell you about my weaknesses. In fact, I don't want you to be uninformed that I was so weak that I despaired even of life itself. We were completely beyond our ability. This is like saying to a girl who's into looks, I want you to know that I get boils often and rashes and my hygiene's really poor. Why start there? Do you see how it's kind of odd? This is the letter where he's trying to win this group of superficial people back to himself and he starts by hitting the very thing that triggers their rejection of him, my weakness. Why does he start there? I want to offer my suggestion. Paul wants at the very beginning of his letter to drive home in the very model of his own life what makes someone truly great as a spiritual leader. He wants to drive home at the very beginning what makes a leader of Christ worthy of following. What is that? What makes a leader of Christ, of Jesus, truly spirit-filled? A truly great spirit leader? One that you ought to follow? What makes that leader great? It's this. Their profound sense of their own weakness, such that it makes them depend utterly on God as the hero of their life story. That's what makes a, spirit, a Christian spiritual leader great. Their profound sense of their own weakness that makes them truly, utterly dependent on God as the hero of their life story. You see, look at verse 9. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from deadly peril. He delivers us again. On Him we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us as you help us with your prayers. We're dependent on your prayers that many may give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. You see, this happened that we might not trust in ourselves, but on God who raises the dead, the one who delivers, the great powerful God, the God we looked at last week. 
the extraordinary God of the universe. The prominent characteristic of the Apostle Paul that shines through at the very start of this letter is his focus on God and the greatness of God in his life, not his own strength. Now, it's been, this, this theme has been, is everywhere in Paul, but it's been everywhere in his writings to the Corinthians particularly because they're the ones who fail to see this. So in chapter 4, 1 Corinthians, you, you get this kind of theme that Paul bangs away on. In 2 Corinthians, you'll get it in chapter 6, or you get it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You get it all, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, you'll get it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, particularly where Paul boasts about his weaknesses, an extended boast about how we... And what shines through in all of Paul's writings is his need for God in his life. He's never embarrassed about his need for God because he's understood the essence of the Christian message. In fact, he's understood the essence of the proper life message. That our only hope is God, not our strength. That's that's the, that's the big message we need to get. That, our, that the, human, the only hope a human has is God, not themselves. And Paul grasped that. That's the essence of the Christian message. Because the essence of the Christian message is not one message amongst many religious options. The essence of the Christian message is saying what no other message is saying, because it's saying the truth, it is human, you're weak. Human, you're frail. Human, you've got no hope except God does it for you. That's the essence of the Christian message. You are weak. God is the rescuer. If you're going to stand before God, your only hope is Him as the Redeemer. Because spiritually, you're, you're crashed, you're smashed, you're weak, you're sinful. Your only hope is God. But that's the case of a life as well. You see, what's going on here is a truth that's fundamental life to the universe and everything else. We are all truly weak. Every human... You know that saying, uh, you know, Christians are just people who need a crutch? Well, yeah, Christians are the one who realised it. It's not that you don't, it's just that we're the ones who have woken up to it by God's grace. Everyone needs a crutch because whether you can see it or not, the fact is we are all weak. Now, it's not obvious in some cultures sometimes, uh, which is a profound problem because it leaves us in denial. Um, and in fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, later in the letter, Paul will, as I said, outline all his weaknesses. And it's just interesting, we haven't got time to go there now today, but it's interesting in that chunk of the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, how Paul distinguishes two kinds of weaknesses. One is the weaknesses that humans have in that we're at the mercy of forces outside of us. He was arrested. He was caught in a storm. He was uh, left for dead. He was stoned. He was, uh, you know, there's forces outside of him he had no control over. But there were weaknesses he talks about inside of us, that we're at the mercy of our own human frailty, our internal limitations, you, you see, for us, um, we can live thinking we control the world, but then a, then a virus comes along. 
which we have no control over. It just smashes through the world. But then there's the fires. Then there's the floods. It doesn't matter how well you build your house in Lismore. Gone. Doesn't matter what you did down the south coast. Fires. Um, the, the economy. Um, here's the thing. It's evidence that we think we're in control. If something goes wrong, we suddenly look around for who, was, who did the wrong thing that had happened. No, life just, we're, we're not in control. Stuff happens to us. There's stuff outside of us we don't have control over, but there's stuff inside of us, internal limitations, illness, the cancer that will come. You can eat right all your life and it'll come. You don't have control over that. Ageing. Age is not just a number. What a dumb thing. Now, is that, that is not evidence of a world that thinks we're in control. Age is just a number? No, it's a number that says how close you are to death. <laughs> it's not just a number. It's real. You, 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 your joints start to get... You can't get up on your board as easily as you used to. Just things just stick up now. It's harder and harder. Ageing comes to you. There's lack of energy. The moods that come upon us, you might, have, you, you might find yourself just borne down by depression. And it, does, it just hap, it, it comes upon you. The black mood. The, the, the habits we can't kick. The, the, uh, um, it appears like we can be in control for a time. You know, if I get sick, I expect the hospital to fix me. I'm always shocked when it doesn't. Aren't you? But that's just because I bought into the lie that I'm in control. We are not omnipotent. The thought that we're in control is just a phantom. It's just for a moment. Mental illness, same-sex attraction. I know some of you struggle with that and you, you, can't, you can't change it. It's a thing you live with. We're not in control, we're weak. And the essence of wisdom is to face the reality that we're weak as humans, not just Christians, humans. And to find that there is a God who is over us, outside of us, who is in control. The God who can raise the dead. The one who loves us and wants to uphold us if we would bow our knee to him and acknowledge our weakness and come to him and say, not me, you. My only hope is you if you sustain me. My only hope is you if you hold me up. My only hope is you if you save me and pay for me. Do you see, this is humbling, humiliating, but it's the essence of the Christian message. It's the essence of the life message we need to embrace. Paul's weaknesses, he prayed for them to be taken away, as you ought. It's not wrong to pray that your weaknesses are taken away, that that illness that might be healed. It's not wrong to pray for it. He prayed for it to be taken away, but he knew the great lesson is a critical lesson for every human. We don't control our lives. We never have. We never will. We'll always be utterly dependent on God. He knew this and then learnt it again and learnt it again. We had, a long, we had a long break a couple of years ago now, some years ago. Every 10 years, we, um, we try and send people away on just an extended break to refresh and so on. We waited 13, 14 years because of various things that happened to us and so on. We went away on this thing we'd been looking forward to to refresh and strengthen us. East Coast low hit 
east coast of Australia, you know my life is in the water. I, I couldn't get out. But the, even the surf was out. It was out of control. It was, went for, for eight weeks. We had the once-in-a-lifetime trip to an island somewhere that we'd been saving up for and so on. We went there. When we arrived, a tropical cyclone started. And it was the longest tropical cyclone in the history of humanity. It went for 10 days. As we flew out, it stopped. And so I think I saw the god somewhere here who arrived when it stopped and wrote to us and said how wonderful it is, the holiday they had. We had a miserable time. There were tears every night. Kathy cried every night. <laughs> and Kathy, I remember we had this conversation. Why is God doing this to us? I, I know he's in control and I know I depend on him. I don't need to learn it anymore. <laughs> Paul learnt the lesson. He already knew the lesson, but he learnt it again and again. We despaired of life itself, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The essence of wisdom is to face reality and to find that there is a God who is over everything and outside of us who loves us. It's liberating. It's liberating. This happened that he might not depend on himself, but on God who raises the dead. Really, the great God. Rely on him because he raises the dead. This is our great challenge. We live in the 21st century where humans have the appearance of controlling things. It's not true. And it's robbing us of eternal life because we won't face the humbling truth that every day is upheld by God. Here's the complete reversal in spiritual affairs that the Corinthians had to go through, every human has to go through. Just think with me about this. If you, if, if you were going to post on social media, hashtag blessed... What would you put as the post? What's the most blessed thing that you could have in your life? What's the greatest blessing that you could experience in your life? Don't say anything because you get it wrong. <laughs> What's the greatest blessing you could have in your life? Healthy kids? Great marriage? Financial independence? What's the, our Prime Minister told us the other day that he was blessed with two healthy kids, not a disabled child. Do you remember that? Now, he misspoke. And don't use that to judge whether you vote for him or not. They're all misspeaking. But nonetheless, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting that he misspoke in that way in front of a person with a disabled child. I've, you know, I haven't had your experience of disability. I've been blessed to have two healthy children. Wow. Wow. How do you think about life? What Christianity has led you to think that that's the blessed life? Healthy kids. What is the most blessed thing that you can have in your life? You look there at verse 10, no, verse 9. This happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. What is the most blessed experience you can have in your life? Brought to utter humility that you might depend on God and not yourself. There is the greatest blessing you could ever have in your life. That you might come to your senses and realise that life is about depending on God. That that is the greatest gift God could give you. To bring you to your senses, to bring you to your knees, to realise that life is about trusting Him, not yourself. Doesn't matter what else, that is the greatest. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? I think it's very hard to. I hear people go to marriage counselling and get their marriages saved 
get their marriages put back together. And they are so relieved. They are full of gratitude and thrilled to the person who helped them come to that place. I don't hear them talk about that when they hear about Jesus saving them. Why is that? Because the spiritual realm is invisible to us. We don't feel it and see it. But that you've been brought to humility, that you might trust in God and not yourself, is the greatest gift you could ever have in life. Believe it. Paul despaired of life itself. This happened that he might not rely on himself. These experiences where you are brought to your knees are a blessing. Count it pure joy, the writer of James says. James says in the book of James 1. Count it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Count it pure joy. Now that is a very different way of thinking about life, isn't it? Have you had moments where you've been brought so low you've despaired of life itself? I know some of you have. Have you gone through such black depression that you've been brought to that place where, I don't know if I can live another day? Have you had that experience? Have you times of distress and anguish, crying out, wondering, why is this happening to me? Have you had those experiences? I know many of you have. And I don't want to offer this in any flippant way. But you are blessed if you've had those experiences. You are blessed if... You handle them rightly and come to the God who raises the dead. If you come to your senses to realise you're not in control, that God is, you, those experiences are a great blessing for you. Now, I don't mean to minimise how difficult those times are. Paul despaired of life itself. He was in a deep pit. But it's a gift from God, if it brings you to your senses, to trust in him. Next time you fall apart, next time your life's in a mess, post a picture of yourself in tears, put it on social media and say, hashtag blessed. (laughs) Rethink. If you have a child that's disabled, there's grief, of course, there is at one level because God's plan for us into eternity is health and wholeness. But if you have a child who's disabled, It's true, you won't have the freedoms that others have. You'll miss out on all kinds of things. It'll be more difficult in many ways. But in God's world, this side of eternity, he or she will bring you great joys. And he or she will teach you the desperately important lesson that you rely on God in everything. It's This world is not your home. You will learn wonderfully blessed lessons. You are more blessed. On the other side of things, if you are healthy and wealthy, so much wealth that you you can choose which job to have. You don't have to stay with a job you don't like. You can choose a job which is much more enjoyable. It gives you free. If you've got a balanced life, if you're that place, and your kids are healthy and well, you've got enough money that you can travel and buy what you want, you're in control of your choices, you are not blessed. You are in great danger. Paul in 1 Timothy 6 says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. You see his message. Who richly provides us. He's the one who gives wealth. Command them to do good, to be rich in good good, and to be generous and willing to share. 
Rethink your wealth. You know, there's comfort in all of this too. Uh, The great apostle Paul experienced the kind of despair that led him to wonder whether he could live, go on living. Now, if you're going through that kind of despair, there is a kind of modern Christianity that says you're not living by faith enough. If you just had more faith, you would walk through life triumphant and powerful and Corinthian. Do you see? And here's where we are. This is exactly where it lands. Modern church life has given the message that the truly spirit-empowered Christian will always stride through life. If you're weak, it's because you've not trusted enough. Paul didn't live like that. The great apostle. And he tells the Corinthians who are into power and triumph and status, I want you to know I despaired even of life. Do you know, we had someone, we've had people leave our church because I told them I struggle with sin. They want a leader who doesn't struggle with sin. But this is the Apostle Paul. Who sins and I don't burn inwardly, says the Apostle Paul. Paul reverses it. The key to greatness is being God-dependent. The more God-dependent you are, the more the one, the lead... The more weaknesses you know and feel and experience that drive you to your needs and God, that makes you a leader that we need to have. We have this treasure in jars of clay so that we can see the all-surpassing greatness comes from God. Don't buy into modern Christianity, which is very Corinthian, the triumphalistic church. Now come back to the start of the letter. Oh dear. Come back to the start of the letter and see all this played out. We've got the whole letter to go through. Now let's do it. <laughs> Look at verse 3 very quickly. Praise be to the God and Father. Do you see how he starts? Praise be to God, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received. Do you see who the hero is in your story? God, the comforting God. Now, comfort here comes from Isaiah 40. I was going to take you from into Isaiah 40 where the comfort that is here is not about feeling nice. That's not the comfort Paul's talking about. We've misunderstood the language of comfort. Being comforted is a message that was given to the Israelites in exile that God one day will bring them out. Comfort, comfort my people. Their hard service is done. God's word of comfort that comforts them is that there will be a return. Not everything will be fixed up now. Comfort for you in the midst of despair and trial will be that there's a future to come. Be comforted. There's there's a hope to come with the Lord Jesus. Be comforted. But the Apostle Paul says here the comfort he received meant that he was able to give comfort to others. Paul comforts us, verse 4, so that we can comfort those in any trouble. If you have been in the midst of despair and you've gone through terrible circumstances of life, but you've found the comfort of knowing that God can carry you through that, he has a hope for you into eternity, the Lord Jesus is sufficient for you, grace of God is... If you've had that comfort in the midst of despair, share it with others. You don't need to share your triumph... You need to share how God has sustained you. You've got something for us if you've been through that experience. Share it with us. 
This is, of course, all just following the Lord Jesus, whose greatness and glory was seen in the fact that he suffered in the cross. He suffered when he was tempted. Came in weakness, which was God's great power. Do you see how Paul's saying, you've not understood Christianity if you think that Christianity is about triumph here and now. The bottom line, what makes a leader great? It isn't their self-reliant power and their self-sufficient strength. It's their deep appreciation of personal weaknesses and the need for God to be the hero. This is so very different to the world. The great spiritual church, the church that's evidence of the Spirit of God in them, is a church full of weak people who are putting one foot in front of another, trusting their God, looking to their God. You know, I spoke to a Christian leader some years ago whose church had struggled but was now growing. He said to me, you know, it's been tough, but we're now reaching winners. My mind almost blew. What? Church is not for winners. Church is for the weak. For many years, there were vision statements that churches had that said, we want to build such a church that the community around us will be impressed by what we're doing and won to it. No. We want to build such a church full of weak people, humbled people, who are so dependent on God that their dependence on God and love of God and reality will bring an appeal to people around them who are weak who are weak as well. Very different way of thinking about the spirit church. We're in the grip of a super-Christianity, which is not true Christianity. Church isn't for the attractive. It's not for the cool and trendy and relevant. It's for the weak. The people who know they're weak, like everyone else is, who just won't admit it. It's for the weak. Because that's the church that glories in God, who raises the dead whose hope is in God, who look to Him and elevate Him and magnify Him because He's the hero. Praise God for our God who raises the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might help us recalibrate, rethink. Help us to um, break free from the superficial judgments of the world around us. And see the world through the lens of Jesus' death and resurrection. That we might see as we ought. And so I appreciate the Apostle Paul as the great one who was weak. Who gloried in his weakness. Because it made him glory in you. Let us be that people. Let us count it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds. That those trials might lead us to trust in you. And constantly put our hope in you and realise we live, breathe and have our our moments in you. That we might be God-dependent people, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.